Hello, I'm Ariet Sneeman. Welcome to Calm, Clear and Helpful, a weekly podcast series on taking good care of yourself and others. Today we're asking, are you a tired, sleep-deprived mum? My guest is Tanya Muir, occupational therapist from Johannesburg with a special interest in sleep health. Welcome, Tanya. Thank you, Maria. Thank you for having me. To our listeners, after our conversation, Tanya will give us her three best tips on sleeping well, and then it will be fun question time. Tanya, you're the mum of three young children, and you're an occupational therapist with a special interest in sleep. So I think you're the perfect person to talk about tired mums and sleep deprivation. Yes, I do have some experience with both. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably an understatement. <laughs> First, we're going to talk about mums and sleeping better, and then we'll move on to kids and sleeping better. Could you start by telling us why an occupational therapist would be interested in sleep? Sure. Well, I think it, a good place to start is to explain what an occupational therapist actually does, because I think a lot of people are either misinformed or uninformed about it. Um, occupational therapists cover a very broad range of um, health interventions. So most people are aware of OTs working with children who are struggling with either learning or have physical disabilities, but we also work across the lifespan. So we work right from babies up until geriatrics, where we are working in all kinds of disabilities, both mental and physical disabilities. But our main focus with all our clients or patients is to help them to engage in their occupations, which is their daily activities from when they wake up until you go to sleep, and in my case, right through the night, any activity that is important and meaningful to that person and helping them to optimize their participation in that activity. So with children, it might be play or schooling. With adults, it might be their work. It might be their family life. It might be their leisure time or a hobby or an activity where they're struggling. So it's very, very broad. And we are well-trained as medical professionals to identify disabilities, and to work with somebody um, also from a biopsychosocial perspective, which means that we look at both the symptoms of the medical problem, but we also look at the social impact or the psychological impact of that disability or problem or difficulty. Now, the reason that I'm interested in sleep is because sleep is actually considered one of the occupations of our daily lives. So we have time when we are awake and we um, participate in all our activities. But when we go to sleep and we hopefully get good quality sleep, we can then be sure that we will have a day full of um, activity that we can participate in optimally and to our best ability. When we're not getting good sleep, it impacts all our functioning during the day. It impacts the way we are feeling motivated. It impacts our mood. It impacts maybe our reaction time. So our physical reaction time, we might feel slower, we feel tired. Um, it can even impact our immunity and our health. So it's very important that health practitioners have an understanding of sleep and how it impacts our daytime and 
occupational therapists view sleep as um, an occupation in itself. So how that person participates in going to sleep and, and then how that affects their daytime function. So that's why I'm involved in it um, as an occupational therapist. You know, before I met you, I never realized how much our sleep impacts us. So do you think we underestimate the role sleep plays in our lives? Absolutely. And I think I did too. At university, when studying to be an OT, there wasn't a lot of emphasis on sleep at all. And still to this day, there's very little emphasis um, during studies. So I wasn't even aware of it myself um, until I started to see it with my own patients and obviously in my own life, how sleep deprivation, you know, played such a big role in, in my health and just in my life in general, and that it had to be addressed at some point. But a lot of people, um, I'm finding more and more, underestimate how important the role of sleep is. And in fact, almost turning it on its head, a lot of people think that it's more heroic to get less sleep or to do very well, um, to succeed, and, and then boast about the fact that, you know, if you, if you don't sleep as much, then you're more likely to succeed in a way, um, which is completely wrong, actually. And the research has shown that you, you can't last like that. There's no sustainability in that, where you might think that you're getting more work done um, or getting to more tasks in the day when you are sacrificing sleep. In fact, in the long run, it affects your productivity quite significantly. So, yes, I think as a society, we underestimate the role sleep plays in our lives and especially the impact it has on our health. I don't think that many people relate the two, sleep and health. No, but I must say, since I've worked with you on some articles, I'm a complete convert. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad. That's, that's my main job. <laughs> Tanya, I found this anonymous quote. I have a sleep disorder. It's called children. <laughs> Yes, I love that. <laughs> yeah. I thought with two boys and a girl ranging from one year to six in your home, you understand this. Could you tell us the story of how you came to be really interested in sleep health? Sure, of course. So with my first son, who, yes, was born six and a half years ago, um, we had a very textbook kind of um pregnancy and birth and he was just this wonderful little baby um, but of course with the usual sleep deprivation that most mothers or parents experience with a newborn and um, within a few months I think it was about six months after giving birth I had this postpartum depression and um, it was very difficult for me to adapt to my new life as a parent um, to accept almost grieve the loss of my previous life in a way um, and to accept the changes. But, but it made it much harder to accept having sleep deprivation because, you know, your resilience is much lower when, you, when you're not sleeping well. And so, um, I mean, I worked through that. I had a lot of support and it was all fun. And then I had my second boy who um, was a very, very difficult baby after a very difficult um, traumatic birth. So then my, my postpartum depression returned and um, also had a lot of difficulty with, with sleep deprivation again. And I mean, of course, you don't really catch up between number one and two. So there's, you know, there's no, there's no there wasn't time for me to kind of come back to a, a, a normal sleep pattern. 
And um, yeah, so I was, I was very sleep deprived and it started to affect my health quite a lot. I, um, I collapsed at one point. I was getting sick very often. I had the depression. I was very irritable. It started to affect my marriage. Um, and my husband at the time was and still is very passionate about health. And he had been doing some reading on sleep and um, the effects on psychological health, et cetera. And he had shared a few insights with me. Um, and when we were having the conversation about some tips and strategies to, to help with sleep, I just suddenly thought, hang on, why don't I know this? I'm a trained occupational therapist. I've learned a little bit about sleep, but I've never really applied it in my own life and even to my clients' lives. And, and their interventions. So um, I was a, my, my pride was a little bit hit, actually, um, because I thought, why does my husband, who's not, not involved in this as an occupation or, or as a career, how does he know all this stuff? And I don't. So it set me off on I was motivated to go and find out more and actually look up why aren't OTs, you know, better trained in this. Um, and turns out it's still quite a young field. And, you know, there's, there's growing research in it. But I thought, wow, this is amazing. This is a, a huge, there's a huge gap here globally. And um, perhaps this is where I should put my energy into helping others now that I have such a good understanding of the effects of it especially as a mom. Um, yeah, and, and I was in any case ready to dive back into my career. So yes, I started to upskill myself, um, do a lot of studying and, and courses. And then I've been developing my practice ever since. Yes, and there's a lot of research, isn't it? Mm, there's a lot of research on, on sleep and health and the relationship between them, yes. Now, the big question is, how much sleep do mums really need? Well, I think, um, I know we're talking about mums specifically, but all adults need seven to nine hours. So if we're talking about quantity, um, the recommendation is seven to nine hours per, per night. But we want seven to nine hours of quality sleep. So, you know, we don't want nine hours of interrupted sleep. Um, we want seven to nine hours of mostly consolidated deep sleep and light sleep, a mixture of all the, the healthy sleep stages. But the, the overarching um, concern with mums is that our output is often um, much higher than when, you know, the, the amount of time we get to rest and relax. So in essence, it, it actually feels like sometimes seven to nine hours is not enough if it was before you were a bum. Um, and that is because there's a we're giving, we're giving a lot of ourselves, both physically and psychologically, from, you know, every waking hour and even during the night when others are sleeping and we're awake. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that, yes, the, it's not really about quantity. I think mums need to look at the quality of their sleep as well. And, and also not to be afraid to to put in the naps, you know, if it's not actually a fear thing. I think for a lot of people, it's just time or opportunity to have naps, but to make sure that they are looking after their sleep. I think valuing their sleep is, is the first step to really like think, you know, yes, I, I'm not doing well without my sleep. And so I must put the supports uh, in place to help me get the sleep that I need. So we can talk about a couple of strategies if you want a little bit later. 
And how do mums know when they are sleep deprived? I think mums know um, when they become a little bit more irritable. So I think that's often a giveaway is um, when you're finding that you are not, you know, you don't have capacity anymore. Um, It's difficult to listen to your husband talk about his day. It's difficult to hear your baby cry. You actually become quite irritated by that or you become irritated by anybody actually or anything that's happening in your day. So your resilience is lower. It's difficult to cope. Um, Often also what happens is moms become very forgetful. Um, And we call this, when we're pregnant, we call this pregnancy brain, but it kind of never goes away even when you're not pregnant. And I think the sleep deprivation becomes the the cause there. So it's difficult to concentrate when people are talking to you or you're trying to do your work. And it's difficult to, to remember Many, many moms that I've spoken to and including myself um, find it quite frustrating in terms of how forgetful we can be. And so that that is also a big clue of sleep deprivation. Um, And then also if you're becoming sick quite often, so we don't always link our immunity to how much sleep we're getting, but if your body's not resting and recuperating and recovering at night, then um, yeah, your immune system takes a big knock and you'll be much more susceptible to um, illnesses that might be going around. Yeah, and then obviously then that's a big vicious cycle because now you're more sick, so now you need more sleep and you're not going to get it because you've got a little baby. So, yeah, I think looking out for some key dysfunction in the day is, is a big sign of sleep deprivation. I've heard you say that mums struggle with many challenges linked to sleep. Uh, There are four examples I've got here. Resorting to caffeine, struggling to lose weight from pregnancy, anxiety, and then postpartum depression that you've mentioned in your own case. Could we discuss these one by one? Sure. So I think resorting to caffeine is a very common um, behavior to try and cope with sleep deprivation. Because, of course, with sleep deprivation, most people struggle with sleepiness and um, difficulty to stay alert through the day. And so caffeine has this stimulating effect. It helps our brains to become more alert. It blocks off messages that we are actually using up energy in our body. So our brain actually just doesn't know that we're getting tired. And it, it increases our heart rate our blood pressure. So it has these stimulating effects physically and mentally or cognitively. And it really does help. It's got a very helpful, effective role to play um, in our lives. The problem is when caffeine becomes something that we are dependent on for the case of staying awake, and then we stop valuing our sleep as the original or natural way to gain energy. Um, And so then what happens often happens with the dependence on caffeine is that we sacrifice our sleep because we think, oh, it's fine, I'll just have my coffee throughout the day or I'll have a few Cokes or Red Bulls and I'll make it through. And so sleep starts to um, become less important. And then once we start now, we've sort of developed these bad habits around sleep and this sort of um, negative valuing of sleep, then we find it more difficult to sleep. Actually, it it um, almost enhances a kind of insomnia. And then a lot of women or people turn to 
relaxing agents or sleeping pills to try and help them sleep. And so now your body becomes dependent on a chemical to stay awake, which is your caffeine, and a chemical to try and sleep, um, which is often these sleeping pills, instead of trying to use the natural processes and, and hormones and neurotransmitters in our body that can do that for us. So the problem with caffeine is that it is addictive. And for some people, they become more tolerant to caffeine. So then they need more and more and more to be able to get the effects thereof. So yes, I think maybe while we're discussing this, I can just put in a little tip here. Use caffeine in the mornings, you know, really use it for a um, helpful effect to help you maybe wake up. But I think it's important to stick to no more than two cups a day and to finish that caffeine intake by about lunchtime, because then you're not relying on it through the entire day. And then you're also allowing your body time to come down from that caffeine stimulation to be able to fall asleep at night. And um, so that that's a generalization of the use of caffeine, I think. Of course, then there is the other side of it where um, caffeine does enter the breast milk. It's a very low amount, but if you are drinking or using a lot of caffeine in the day and breastfeeding, it can affect your baby as well and therefore might affect their sleep as well. Okay, so then I don't know if you want to ask any questions on caffeine before I move on. I was just wondering, you know, like the sugar high one gets and then it falls again. So you have that low. Does caffeine have, mm. have a similar effect? Yes, it does. And it's often called a caffeine crash. And the way it works is that caffeine blocks a chemical in the brain called adenosine. Adenosine builds up through the day the more energy we use. So as we use up energy, then the adenosine um, builds up and up and up in the brain. And it basically tells the brain we are ready for sleep when it reaches a certain level. And the problem with the caffeine is that it's very similar in molecular structure. So it's got a very similar shape to the adenosine. So when caffeine is in the blood as well, it actually races to those receptor sites in the brain where adenosine is supposed to go. And when the caffeine is in those receptor sites, it blocks off the adenosine signal to the brain. So now the brain thinks, actually, we're fine. We're not using up too much energy. We don't need to rest. We just can keep going. Mm. But then caffeine wears off eventually. It metabolizes in the brain and body, and it goes through the blood, out the, out the body. And now this adenosine that has, in fact, been building up in the background is in the blood, rushes into those open receptor sites now. And then the body, the brain suddenly gets this massive message that, oh my goodness, I am absolutely finished. I need to go sleep right now. And that's a caffeine crash. Mm. But instead of listening to our bodies, we just go get more caffeine to, to make it through that, which then takes about 20 minutes and then, and then we get that effect. So um, yes, we do also experience that similar crash that some people feel from sugar. Thank you. So then you also asked about struggling to lose weight from pregnancy. And I think also it's it's to do with quite a few chemicals in the body. So I'll just discuss them um, one by one. One of them is insulin. So the role of insulin, it breaks down the glucose and helps us to use up the sugar or to store the sugar for energy purposes. So when we eat sugar, when I say sugar, I'm not talking about table sugar. I'm talking about um, glucose. So it's in a lot of foods, a lot of carbohydrates. So when we eat our carbohydrates, insulin is released. 
during sleep, the balance of our insulin hormone is attended to so that we don't produce too much insulin. And what happens with sleep deprivation, what they're finding is that people are becoming more insulin resistant if they are sleep deprived. So this is now chronic sleep deprivation, which often happens with mums because it's for so long. And so that what happens is that the sugar doesn't get broken down very nicely and the glucose is then stored and it often becomes stored as in the fat cells or it gets converted. Um, it's a bit of a complex process. I'm trying to simplify. And then we struggle to lose, to lose that weight because we're actually putting on more weight um, or maintaining weight. The other chemicals involved are called ghrelin and the other one is called leptin. And what research has shown now is that ghrelin which is responsible for telling us that we're hungry. When um, our body needs more energy, our body releases ghrelin. And then that sends a message to the brain to tell us that we need to eat and it makes us feel hungry. Um, and ghrelin increases. So the research is showing that ghrelin is increased quite significantly when we are sleep deprived. In other words, when you wake up in the day, when you've woken up in the morning and your ghrelin is increased, then through the day, through the morning and the day, you will be much more hungry than usual. And the other hormone is leptin, and leptin is the opposite. So leptin's job um, is when we have eaten enough, then it increases and tells the brain that we are, are satisfied, that we can stop eating. And leptin's levels, at the same time as ghrelin's increasing, leptin's is decreasing. So it takes much longer for our brains to actually realize that we are full and satisfied. So in essence, what's actually happening is that we end up eating more than we need to um, when we are sleep deprived. Um, some thoughts on this is maybe that because we are sleep deprived, the body needs more energy. So then it looks for, for food. Um, but what they're also finding is that not just eating more, but people's choice of food is foods with higher calories. So your much more your um, simple sugars that can convert into energy much quicker. So unhealthy food, basically, and higher calories. And so, of course, if you are struggling to lose weight from pregnancy and you are sleep deprived, what's probably happening is this big imbalance of hormones in the body that might be contributing to that difficulty with weight loss. And then anxiety. Um, so, I mean, there's so much research on the relationship between, so I'll talk about anxiety and postpartum depression together because they are both conditions of mental illness. And there's lots and lots of research on the bi-directional relationship between sleep and mental health. And what that really means is that for a long time, most mental illnesses, I think, in fact, all of them, had a symptom. It was described with a symptom of sleep uh, disturbance, some kind of sleep disturbance. And until recently, when it was advocated that insomnia and sleep issues and difficulties are actually a separate problem from mental illness. Because sometimes what's seen is that with sleep deprivation or um, after sleep deprivation, you're at a higher risk for developing mental illness. But the other way is also true where if you have mental illness, some, something like depression or anxiety or bipolar um, mood disorder, then you are also at a higher risk for sleep disturbance. They are bi-directional. One can cause the other. 
and they play into one another consistently. So it's very important to both look after both your mental health and look after your sleep. So actually what we're starting to see is that moms with anxiety um, before they have children are much at a much higher risk for postpartum anxiety and depression because it's almost already there and then the sleep deprivation kind of worsens it. But also moms who have never struggled with anxiety or postpartum depression and then have very bad sleep deprivation are definitely at a higher risk. It might not even be in the first year. It can be up to a year later that you only start seeing symptoms of anxiety or depression. So a year of sleep deprivation can then feed into the development of anxiety or postpartum depression which might not, people might not link. They might not link the two. Of course, there's so many things about having a child that can feed into anxiety, feed into postpartum depression. Um, you know, you've got your worries about your body changes. You've got your life changes, your, your new role, especially if it's your first child, your new role as a mother and what that might um, consist of. I think that all moms will agree that having children brings up a lot of questions about your own relationship with your mother. You know, there's a lot, there's a lot going on. Your, your marriage changes, your work changes, or your thoughts about work changes. So there is just so much that you're already dealing with as a mom that can bring up anxiety or trigger the, uh, stress and depression. So it's very important to also remember that your sleep plays a role in how well you manage that anxiety or that stress. So looking after your sleep is, is a, in a way, therapy or prevention of, of postpartum anxiety and depression. And I never knew that in my own experience. I kind of knew that not getting enough sleep would make me more moody in the day. And I kind of just left it at that. But ongoing in a chronic state of sleep deprivation, I didn't realize that it was part of the development of a pattern of thinking, of a um, lower resilience to the stresses in my day. So yes, I, I wish I had known this a bit sooner because then I could have used my sleep um, as best that I could in, in the, of course, because I know that there's lots of uh, circumstances that play a role in being able to get sleep, but just having that awareness of how important sleep is already starts to change small little habits and small little um, thoughts in your day about your day and about your your sleep I was just thinking that it might if you understand the link between sleep and say your mental health as you said it's not simple but one could see sleep as maybe part of the foundation for sound mental health then you might feel more free to ask someone to help you sometimes so you can get a little sleep Yes, definitely. And I think that is one of the tips I was going to, to mention is that when you do prioritize your sleep, then you do, you reach out for help, you make a plan in your day. I know for myself, I know that it's in everybody else's interest <laughs> in my mm. family, both mm. my husband and my children, um, for me to get better sleep. Yes. So I can be a better mom and a better wife if I'm getting enough sleep. Mm. Now, talking about being a wife, let's talk about the role played by the mum's partner, if there is a partner. Right. I think, first and foremost, it's important to recognise that 
um, the primary caregiver, or, or shall I say, normally the mom who's given birth, is the one who might be getting up during the night the most, or most be, might be the most sleep deprived in, in, in a majority of situations because they're having to feed. And this is right in the beginning. Um, but it's not to say that the partner is not also having sleep deprivation. Um, in some cases, I know that in some relationships, there are agreements between the two that it will be the one and not the other because um, normally it's the mum or the feeding mum because the other the partner has to work the next day. And so there's an, an agreement that that person doesn't have to get up. Um, but I've seen some really nice agreements or yeah, sort of like um, a compromise between the two parents or caregivers where there is one getting up at a specific hour uh, in the night and then the other gets up at a, at a specific hour as well where they're allowing the other to get a good stretch of sleep at night. For example, instead of well, there might be one case where mom's getting up at half past 10. If she's already gone to sleep, she's getting up at half past 10 and two o'clock and then again at 5 a.m. And this is very disruptive for her. But if dad or partner is getting up in any case at 5 a.m. or maybe at 5.30, maybe it's better for dad to take that one and allow mom a little bit of a stretch. Or sometimes partner will take the first waking and feed and then mom can get a decent sleep from 9 p.m., let's say, until 2, 2 a.m. So there's just, you know, there's a bit of an arrangement that starts to become more effective and helpful just to get that little bit of a stretch. And it's important to start this right from go. The partners often, the non-feeding partners, shall I say, often feel a little bit left out because they don't have that significant role to play in feeding. Um, so I know my husband and I came up with a really lovely uh, compromise where I would wake up to feed and then it was my husband's job to now take my daughter and do the burping and put her back to sleep when she's ready. So all I had to do was wake and feed and then go back to sleep. Um, and that was a nice arrangement for us because remember that feeding, if you're the feeding partner, you're also giving up a lot of your your resources, your your energy sources. So not only are you missing out on restorative sleep, but you're also your output is much bigger um, in terms of your calories. So you wake up feeling tired, even if you're getting some sleep. Um, and it's because you're also giving a lot of your calories away during the night. Whereas um, the non-feeding partner is not having to do that. So it's very important to have that communication between the two and to realize that even though this person can go to work the next day or, you know, gets to go to work, I say, because mm. I, in a lot of times I would rather be going to work mm. than staying at home. Um, there, there's a, a give and take. There's still a give and take for both. So, yes, I think it's fair to split up the sleep deprivation and not put it all on one, <laughs> one part, one of the partners, you know, let's take turns or let's, let's, yeah, 50-50, the whole thing, if we can. I think that would be very important for both the mental health of the, all individuals involved and also the relationship between both partners. I think that's a wonderful suggestion. <laughs> now, I'd like to know how sleep deprivation in mums and kids may affect a love relationship. 
Do you mean the relationship between um, yeah, say the mum and the dad, two partners? Yes. Okay. All right. So yes, I think I've touched a little bit on it when um, I spoke about mood, and I think that with sleep deprivation. Irritability is such a common part of sleep deprivation to feel. And in any relationship, I think irritability is quite difficult to manage on both uh, for both parties. So when you've got that irritability, difficulty managing um, any kind of basic task because your cognitive output is much lower or it's much more difficult to concentrate and to remember and to make good decisions and to reason through problems. So just your daily life becomes much more difficult to manage. And I think that on top of all of that, what a lot of moms struggle with, or people struggle with, is being a parent is a lot of giving. And you have to give your energy, you have to give your time, um, and often you have to sacrifice a lot of things that you would rather be doing. And the way that I think that can affect a relationship is because at the end of the day, when it is, when the kids are maybe in bed and you do finally get time together, actually, you'd rather just go to bed <laughs> or actually you'd rather just be by yourself. And the sleep deprivation on top of all of that just makes it that much worse. Because if I would rather go to sleep whenever I have the opportunity than be awake with my partner because I actually can't be touched anymore. I actually can't, I don't want to listen to anything anymore. My ears are, are finished, I'm touched out and actually I just want to go lie down and be away from the world. Um, this is going to obviously affect your relationship. So you've got irritability. You've got, I can't remember what you told me yesterday or I forgot to do what you asked me to do. Or you'd, I don't feel like you care about me because you have no idea what I'm doing during the day. All of these things are already part of parenting and navigating this new role that you've got as a mother. And on top of that, your sleep deprivation is just going to make you much less resilient to all of those things happening in, uh, in your relationship. You're going to have a lot less tolerance for your partner. And then interestingly, um, there was some research done on your attractiveness when you're sleep deprived, which is quite interesting. It was a very interesting study done where two groups were, were part of the study and one, one group was um, deprived of sleep for one night and the other group had their full night of sleep, but the groups were mixed together. And then there was an independent group that came in and rated the attractiveness of all the mixed groups. Um, so they didn't know which which of the participants had had a full night of sleep or not. And they just had to rate the attractiveness of the people in front of them. And it was really interesting because all the people that were sleep deprived were rated as uh, having a lower attractiveness than the others. So there's also this side of it, you know, in a love relationship where you've got to consider things like um, intimacy and sexual attraction and, you know, just wanting to be in each other's presence. Um, sleep deprivation plays a role in that. It also plays a role in libido. You know, if you're not, if you are sleep deprived, that's going to be your body and your brain's first priority is wanting to actually rest. Um, normally not going to be to have sex or to be intimate with somebody else. That's often going to be the last thing on somebody's mind if they, all they can think about is sleep. Thank you. You put that so clearly. 
And I think that's why it, it's such a good idea, as you mentioned, to split the responsibility at night. For sure. Now we're moving to kids. So many babies sleep fitfully, and my kids now are young adults, but I really remember that very well. How do you view this? What can you tell mums with babies who sleep fitfully? Um, I think with all my mum clients, the first thing I do is I talk about what healthy and normal sleep looks like. And it's, I think it's so important to normalize that people wake up during the night. It is absolutely normal. And in the case of a baby, it is actually completely normal for them to wake up. So let's talk about what sleep looks like just a little bit. So when you go to sleep, you have to go through a cycle of sleep stages. So you've got your light sleep and your deep sleep and your dream sleep as an adult. And at the end of each cycle, we actually all wake up, even if it is just for a second. And sometimes it's a little bit longer. And it's believed that this is evolutionary. So we wake up between cycles just to check that everything's still okay before we go back into a deep sleep and not be aware of our surroundings. So it's kind of a protective mechanism. But most of the time, we don't remember waking up. Unless something is bothering us, like we need to go to the toilet, we've got pain or the pillow's falling off the bed or there's a noise. And then we might attend to that and go back to sleep. So a healthy individual should easily go back into the next cycle of sleep as long as everything's okay. So keep that in mind, that it is normal for us to wake up. We might not always remember and normally we go back into the next cycle. And that's about five times a night if you're getting enough hours of sleep. So. Um, in the case of a baby, they have a very different sleep pattern. So babies sleep 50% a lighter sleep and 50% um, a, a slightly deeper sleep. And they are also conditioned to wake up every cycle. And these cycles are actually much shorter than ours. Some babies sleep cycles as short as 50 minutes. Um, and as they get older, it extends to about 70 or 75 minutes. And adults is from 90 to 120 minutes. So with babies, they wake up more frequently as a natural mechanism to check that everything's okay. The other thing that plays a role is that babies and newborns especially need to feed. They don't have big stores of energy. And remember, they're only drinking milk in the beginning. So they need to, to feed frequently. And breastfed babies feed more frequently than bottle-fed babies or formula-fed babies, shall I say. So babies, especially on breast milk, will wake up um, at least every 50 minutes. Now, they don't necessarily always get hungry every 50 minutes. So if they wake up um, at the end of their cycle and they're still good to go, they'll just go back into their next cycle. They'll, well, when they're little, they don't turn over, but they might just um, stir a little bit and then go into the next cycle. And when they're hungry, they're going to call out because that's uh, important for them to now have their, their feed. So we have to wake up for them in that first little while. And it's often recommended that the baby sleeps near mom, maybe next to the bed in, in their own cot or their co-sleeper so that they are close by. So that mom doesn't have to get up and use her extra energy to now move to another room and sit up. And she can actually just be comfortable in her bed, feed and then put the baby back. So that's two things. We've got the natural wakings and we've got the, the feeding. So now with the natural wakings, 
it's important not to rush to the baby. Um, so I, I often tell moms, it's okay if your baby wakes up during the night. And if they stir a little bit, wait a few minutes. You can wait two or three minutes if, you, if you're not happy to wait longer than that. Normally, they're not crying straight away. Normally, they are just stirring or they might talk to themselves or they might make a few gurgling sounds. And then they should be able to go back to sleep. And this is very important. It's both a habit for the baby from about four months to start developing and a habit for mom. Because I think that we as moms, we also get into a habit of how we respond to our babies. And we don't actually stop and think, should I go in or shouldn't I go in? Is this cry for this or is it for that? We just want to actually get them back to sleep as quick as possible so that we can go back to sleep. But I, I always encourage moms to just wait that few minutes before rushing in. Because then the habit of rushing in becomes um, a habit for the baby to need mom to go to sleep. So from about four months of age, babies are able to develop habits and um, routine becomes very important. So this is the age between four and six months where we want to encourage moms to not feed their babies to sleep and to have a very consistent routine for going um, down at night for the baby. Because what happens is the brain associates that wind down routine with being able to fall asleep. So the brain gets ready for sleep um, as soon as that routine starts because it's consistent. So one of the things that a lot of moms get into the habit of is feeding their baby to sleep. Now, I'm not saying that feeding your baby to sleep is a bad thing um, at all. I think that it's just something to consider if your baby is struggling with waking up at night once they are past the six-month uh, age because from six months onwards, it's it's not recommended to have um, night feeds anymore. By then, your baby will have um, is starting solids in the day, and they don't no longer need the breast milk at night. This is in a general case. Obviously, if your child is sick or has problems with feeding, then it's different. But for the most part, we don't want to um, encourage the habit or encourage the association of needing milk to fall asleep, because then when that baby wakes up naturally during the night between their cycles, what happens is they can't fall back asleep because the conditions of when they fell asleep at the beginning of the night are now different. So how am I going to fall asleep if I don't have my milk? I don't know how to do that. So it starts just to become a training opportunity so that the baby can start falling asleep by themselves at the beginning of the night. They don't have to be on their own, but it's a case of not needing mom to intervene in any way. All right, so it's just about mom being present maybe and then slowly moving away so that baby can just fall asleep on their own. I mean, I can go on and on about this, of course, but the, the, the question was my view of baby sleeping fitfully is it's completely normal and it's okay and it's part of the, the phase that they're in and importantly, it's, it should not be forever. <laughs> so mm. I often take on the role of just encouraging mom. It's not going to be forever. It's not a problem. It doesn't mean there's something wrong with your baby. And all babies are different. So unfortunately, you will get that one in four, I think it is, of babies that are going to sleep well and, and not ever wake up or stir. 
um, from an early age. And and you'll meet moms that say, no, I don't have a problem. Then you think there's something wrong with your baby or something wrong that you're doing. But all babies are different. All people are different. So there will be different temperaments and different attachment styles. So, yeah, just keeping everything in mind that it is a complex, <laughs> complex situation having kids. It's not black and white. Mm. Thank you, Tanya. Could you please touch on a few common sleep problems in childhood and how one can approach them? Okay, sure. So I started to talk about the association problem, and that is a big one. So later on, um, now we're talking sort of in the toddler years, so anytime from two and a half, three years old and upwards, children might still have this association problem of needing parents or a uh, caregiver at bedtime. And then waking up in the night and needing to come again to their parent. And this is, again, this often stems from when they were babies. And so there was just never a, a self-soothing strategy introduced where um, the, the child was able to just relax and be okay on their own at night. Um, and so this becomes a common problem because, well, shall I say, it becomes a behavioral problem where now the child is saying, I need my mom and dad and I'm going to put my foot down about this. So then you get problems at bedtime where the child often wants to get up um, after mom has said or dad has said goodnight and they leave the room, then the child keeps getting up and coming through to the lounge or wherever their parents are because they don't want to be by themselves. And the common strategy for that is really just to be completely consistent, send the child back to bed or go back with them, put them to bed and then leave again. And just to keep doing that, especially at a um, at a young age where you, it's difficult to reason with them. As they approach maybe three, three and a half, where they start to um, assert themselves a little bit more, then you can start putting in place something called a, a pass, which works for some uh, parents, um, where you allow the child one or two passes. So if they need to get up for anything, because often they come up with all kinds of reasons. I need, I'm thirsty or I need the toilet again. And it's all these sort of strategies of their own to get mom's attention and to procrastinate bedtime. Then you can give them two opportunities. So you can make a little piece of cardboard. So I don't know, maybe it's got a picture on there of the toilet or of getting up out of bed or something. And then they can have two every night. So they're not allowed to, once they've used it, then they've got one left. And once they've used both, that's it. They cannot get up again. So it just gives them, it starts to train them in this enough is enough and there's a boundary uh, kind of behaviors or, or understanding. So that's one of the strategies that people use. Um, but I think at the end of the day, it's important to help. So I just encourage grading. So start where your child is. Give your child what they need. What do they need? Do they need you because it's been a busy day and you've been out maybe working the whole day? Now you've come home and you've been busy with bath time and dinner time, but haven't had quality time with your child. Is that maybe why they're seeking you at night? Is there a bit of separation anxiety or just they're missing you a little bit? So I first start with incorporating some quality time in the early evening. So 15 minutes is normally enough, 15 to 20 minutes of absolutely undivided attention for your child or children. No cell phones, no technology, one-on-one, um, -on -one, whatever they want to do, playing a quiet game, that kind of helps them also unwind for bedtime. Reading stories is often very, very um, powerful in a lot of ways. 
Um, so just connect, connect with your child. That can often help with the separation anxiety at night. Once a day, give your child the 15 or 20 minutes of undivided attention. And often then when they, if, if, if the problem is that they are waking up during the night, they're not seeking you. They're not seeking that connection um, as desperately as they maybe were before. Yes, there's that. And then you do get the case of insomnia in children. So this is now a sleep disorder where children are struggling um, with either falling asleep or waking up during the night. And this is now becomes more serious and needs um, intervention, quite specific intervention and protocols in place. But normally what helps to begin with at least is a very consistent wind down routine. So consistent is a very important part of that. And then also the winding down. It's very important to focus on winding down and not winding up. So a lot of the time we want to do rough and tumble play with our kids and we want to chase them around the house and tickle them and play, which is fine for before the wind down routine begins. But once wind down routine begins, and perhaps that's with a bath, um, I know that at an older age and when you've got Siblings' bath time isn't quite relaxing. It becomes uh, the rowdy part of the evening. But maybe after that, maybe one's pajamas are on, or we've had a little bit of a back tickle or a massage, or we've sung some songs together and we're reading a book. It's really activities that are winding down to trigger the brain. That strategy is incredibly important. The consistency of that plays such a big role. Every single night, Round about the same time, having the same wind-down routine. Um, it helps kids feel safe. Their brains know what to expect, so there's predictability, less anxiety around what's going on. Um, and then it basically entrains their circadian rhythm. It helps their circadian rhythm to stay on track, which is obviously important for, for all kinds of health. Yeah, I think those are probably the most common sleep problems in childhood. Thank you, Tanya. That's very hands-on. Now, if a mum comes to you and says she's exhausted, how do you assist her? Um, so as an occupational therapist, I look very holistically at my clients. So what that really means is I need to look at this mom's entire day and entire life. Um, I'm going to first start with an in-depth interview of who she is. Um, what does her life look like? What is her current routine? What are her goals? What are her values? What are her needs from therapy or from a session with me? So she's exhausted. She's depleted. And she, she, she's now come for help. So I'm looking at her whole life. How much time is she spending um, at work? How much time is she spending for herself? Is she attending to exercise? Is she eating healthily? And then we look at sleep patterns as well. So it's very important for me to get an understanding of this mom completely holistically. I don't isolate sleep. Um, it's part of the day and it impacts the day and the day impacts sleep. So I need to understand this person as a whole. And then we start to break down maybe where the problems are in the day or the, or the nighttime. And what helps me do this is I normally ask mums to keep a sleep diary. And I do this when I'm addressing problems with children as well. I provide a sleep diary template, which they can fill in on their computers. And it really just asks when you went to sleep or when you tried to go to sleep, when you fell asleep, 
when you had to wake up, why you had to wake up and what time that was and did you have difficulty going back to sleep and then what time did you wake up in the morning? And then maybe a one or two questions about the daytime. So I tailor the sleep diary as well to the person. For example, if they smoke, then I want to know maybe how many cigarettes they had in the evening or what time did they stop smoking or maybe if they're big coffee drinkers, then we'll track a little bit of their caffeine. So a sleep diary gives me data to begin dissecting and to understand what's really happening. Often what happens with people who are sleep deprived is that they actually have very poor judgment of their own sleep and of their own function or dysfunction. So if I just ask broad questions and then I get a sleep diary, um, often they, they, they don't reflect one another mm. um, because it's difficult. It's difficult to even know and remember what time did I wake up? three days ago, you know. So when we track it, we start to see these these patterns that are actually there, and then we can start to see where the breakdown is. And so then I address each issue as it comes up. And depending on the severity, if it is an insomnia, um, so besides the baby waking up a mom, if it becomes developed into an insomnia and mom struggles with sleep despite a child sleeping through the night maybe, then there's specific protocols that I follow that are evidence-based protocols to address insomnia um, or circadian rhythm disturbance. Fascinating. Where can listeners learn more about your work? I have a website. It's www.sleep-ot.com. And um, on there, I have the opportunity to book an appointment and um, a little bit about me and my services. And I'm also on Facebook and I'm also on Instagram. Just sleep OT is my handle. Sleep underscore OT, I think, is my handle. And I just post a little bit on there. Sometimes I run courses for the public. So if you are connected with me on Instagram or Facebook, then you'll hear about when those happen. And then you can learn more about sleep. Um, Yes, and my contact details are also there. I'll attach the link to your website to the podcast. Thank you. Then you must tell us about your Mum Me Time program. Right, yes. So the Mum Me Time, and it's spelled M-O-M-M-E, which basically means I'm a mom and I need me time. Um, It's a program that I have developed for groups of mums to get together to connect um, and to support one another. It's about an eight-week program. It's once a week. And it's about eight eight to ten moms who meet and we discuss a variety of topics around parenthood, around womanhood, um, and anything actually that is a need in the group. Sometimes it's just about stress. Sometimes it's about time management. And sometimes it's just... Um, maybe a little bit of a venting session about children or, or partners and then just sharing of strategies, sharing of approaches. And I think what's so powerful about it is that it's time out. Um, it's time for you as a mom, you know, to get that time away from everybody else and to focus on you. It's camaraderie with other moms, finding support with other moms who get it. Um, and then it's also an opportunity to help others. And I think that despite how depleted we are of giving as moms, there's a lot of catharsis in um, being with others where you can also help. It helps you feel better at the end of the day that you've been able to contribute what you've maybe learned with your own baby and then obviously learning from others. 
So it can be very, very powerful. And it's kind of a guided program, but it follows a model, um, an OT model that um, helps with social interaction. So through social interaction, learning and increasing things like uh, self-esteem, looking at sleep and looking at roles, new roles that we play, supporting our relationships. So there's quite a few topics that tend to come up. And that's online. Um, it can be offered online, but it's also in person. Um, and it, I, I just wait for people to contact me and then I can set up a group for them in their area if it's close enough to me. Yes, otherwise uh, we do it online. Okay. I've been wanting to ask you, do people find it strange to pay for sleep coaching? Um, you know, when it's for their children, no. I think that's become quite a common thing. So people will pay for sleep uh, training is what it's called um, for children or babies. And I think people find it, they get to a point where they're quite desperate that they actually will pay anything as long as it's kind of, there's a guarantee. So those are your, your um, sleep trainers. But I think what people find strange at the moment is to accept help for sleep um, and then obviously on top of that to have to pay for it because I think it's such a new field that people aren't actually aware first of all where to go to get help and that is not a sleeping pill. Yes, I think people are worried to pay for it because there maybe there is no guarantee that it will help but yeah, I think you get people who are who are willing to do whatever it takes and then they do come and they're not worried about it um what is nice about being a medical professional is that often medical aid will cover depending what plan somebody's on of course sometimes the medical aid will cover my sessions so then it does help (laughs) some people who are worried about it i really think sleep is so basic that it can turn your life around if you get that right Definitely, I do agree. Now, could you give us your three tips on sleeping well, please? So to sleep well, it's actually, I have three daytime tips. And that is to wake up at the same time every day. So including the weekend, seven days a week, wake up at the same time. This is incredibly important to entrain your circadian rhythm um, so that your body and your brain know what's happening and can predict the day ahead in a way and help you to get to sleep on time that night. The second tip is to get sunlight. A very important part of our biology is our response to sunlight in the morning. So first thing after waking or within an hour of waking, getting a good 15 minutes in the sunshine the sun actually triggers our circadian rhythm as well. That's my second tip. I don't think enough of us get enough sunlight in the day or especially in the morning. And my third tip is to employ a wind-down routine. Not only children need a routine before bed. Um, All people benefit from a wind-down routine. Normally, this shouldn't include technology just because It's quite a a broad range of content that we can engage with. So I would recommend no technology, a book or um, some meditation, stretching, having a conversation with loved ones or playing a game or um, just relaxing. These all can be part of a consistent wind down routine. So you have your three or four things that you do every single night before you go to sleep. 
And that starts to help your brain to prepare for sleep, that you'll find yourself yawning as soon as you start number one, <laughs> eventually, because your body just knows, ah, yes, it's bedtime. And that's mm -hmm. what you really want. Instead of just switching the lights off and climbing into bed and hoping to fall asleep um, straight away. That's, that's not how our biology works. Thank you, Tanya. May I now ask you your fun question? Yes. Right, we're going to the fantasy realm, which you're very familiar with, I'm sure, with your little kids in the house. <laughs> Now, if you could choose a fantasy character to come to your home at night and keep an eye on the kids so you could get a good night's sleep, which <laughs> character would you choose? Oh, my goodness. Um, so there would have to be one of the characters that I find quite reliable Mm. and strong and protective hmm. I'm quite into Marvel movies so I would probably choose um, Black Widow hmm. she's incredibly good at fighting so she was trained as an assassin as a child <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but I would choose her also because she's a woman and um, she does have a very nurturing side And I believe that she would be able to fight off anything that might uh, come into the house so that I don't have to keep one eye open in, <laughs> in Johannesburg. <laughs> um, but also because she does have that nurturing side. And I think that she would, yeah, I think she would care very much for my children and look after them. Yeah, I think that's, that's one option that came to my mind. Yeah. Yeah, what a wonderful answer. And thank you for, for giving us some much-needed insight into sleep deprivation. I really needed to hear this podcast decades ago. Yes, I agree. I think it's uh, very strange that we didn't know about this much longer ago. Yeah. So thank you, Tanya. Thank you, Mary. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate this opportunity to speak to your listeners. And to our listeners, I really appreciate your joining us. If you found this episode helpful, please share it with someone you care about. I'd really appreciate it if you'd rate Calm, Clear and Helpful where you download your podcasts. If you'd like a more fulfilling relationship with your beloved, if you wish parenting could be easier, or if you're interested in improving your emotional well-being, You're welcome to visit my website, marietsneiman.co.za, for free articles and podcast episodes. Calm, Clear and Helpful is compiled, hosted and edited by me, and the music is by Mark Marie Sneiman. Catch you next Tuesday at 9.